We're in this morning Hebrews chapter 7 verses 11 to 19. Hear then the word of God. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent from Aaron, but by power, the power of an indestructible life. For it is written of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect, But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is living and true. Every word of it, every page of it. We want to understand it. We want to know what you're saying so that it shapes our thinking and our hearts. Father, that it shapes our worldview, that it shapes our worship that it shapes our love for you and our service to you and your kingdom. So, Father, would you speak your word afresh and with truth and power to us, not that we may gain information, but that we may be changed. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The law and the promise are holy, righteous, and good. Right? So the Old Testament, where we're given the law uh, and, and the promise, uh, They are holy, they are righteous, and they are good. God had made promises to Abraham in the Old Testament. You have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abraham and brings him out. And and God made promises to Abraham and we're told at that time that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We're told that Abraham was saved by grace through faith, right, that he believed God Through faith, it was credited to him as righteousness, and he's saved by grace through faith in the Old Testament. And and then because of this salvation, this salvation that God was promising and giving to Abraham and to his children, God cut a covenant with him. I don't know if you remember, there's an interesting uh, passage in the Old Testament where it tells us that Abraham is, is basically put to sleep, that he falls asleep on the side, and God lays out some animal halves, and that he passes through them in the Old Testament way of literally cutting a covenant and saying that I will take on myself the curse of the covenant if it's not fulfilled. And so he makes a covenant, a unilateral covenant with Abraham, who's slept through most of it, who did not participate, did not make any promises. He simply received God's promise. God made a covenant with him, promised to him, and said the covenant will be fulfilled. 
In Galatians 3, verse 8, it tells us that God preached the gospel to Abraham there in the Old Testament, there in the opening pages of the Scripture. The gospel is revealed. The gospel is preached to Abraham. Promises are made not only to Abraham, but to his offspring. Right? And if you remember that it tells us in Galatians also that the offspring there is singular and that that offspring is Jesus. That there were promises made there in the opening pages to Abraham as the gospel is preached, as he is saved by grace through faith. The promises made to Jesus in the coming of Christ. And what we need to see and what we'll see here and see throughout is everything in between is just that. It's an in-between. Between the promise and its fulfillment in Christ. Everything else stands in between. We heard the story last week how Lot was captured. You know, Lot is Abraham's nephew, and uh, he went towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham went this way. It went bad for Lot. He gets captured and taken by some kings in the midst of some conflict. Abraham mounts a rescue mission, goes after Lot, and rescues him, and takes some plunder from this battle, and he starts heading home, and he bumps into this guy, Melchizedek. Melchizedek appears literally out of nowhere. There's no hint of him in Scripture. There's no hint of his priesthood in Scripture. There's, he just shows up. He comes into Abraham's life more than 400 years before the Mosaic Law. Before Moses delivers and gives the law and Israel is established and the law and the priesthood of Aaron. Before any of that happens, 400 years before any of that. Abraham meets Melchizedek, a high priest of the Most High God. And Melchizedek, we're told, prefigures, or he's a type that prefigures and points to Jesus. If you look back in chapter 7 to verses 2 and 3, it tells us that he was the king of righteousness. Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness, that he's the king of righteousness, that he is the king of Peace, that he has no beginning and he has no end, that he's this priest of the Most High God with no, no beginning, no end, the king of righteousness and peace. And he is a picture, a type that prefigures and points to Christ. He is the priest of the era of the promise, right? The promise is given to Abraham and Abraham tithes to him and honors him. And he is the priest then of the promise the promise that came first. And this is what the New Testament and Paul and most of his writings and Hebrews all is trying to tell us is that while there is the law and Israel in between, the promise came first. Salvation by grace through faith in the life of Abraham, that promise, that covenant came first and that governs all that God is doing from there out. Even the law of Moses and the Old Testament, it came first. So we have Abraham and Melchizedek, the promise and the priesthood, long before Moses and his priesthood and the priesthood of Aaron. And God intends, in all of this, from the beginning, from the fall of Adam, God intends a perfect salvation. He intends to make things right. He intends a perfection for his people, a future where all that was broken is made perfect again and made right. And that's why in verse 11 we're told, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under the people they received the law, 
right? The law and the priesthood and the temple, that's all part of the law, the Levitical law, the making of the temple, the giving of sacrifices, the priesthood that, that drove that whole train, all of that is part of the law. And he is saying if perfection was attainable through all of that, that law, we wouldn't need any other priests. We'd still be in the Old Testament. We'd still be doing that. If it could accomplish God's ultimate purpose of perfecting a people for himself, if the law and the priesthood could have done that, it would have. But it couldn't. It didn't. And so another priest arise. God's intention is a perfect salvation for a people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue, right? His purpose is a people for himself. His purpose from eternity, from Old Testament, Jesus, he, even to Abraham, he says, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations, my purpose is global. It's not just about in Israel. It's not just about what I'm doing in this one place or time. In fact, all of that is subservient to and serves this ultimate purpose of mine, which is a perfected people. And it cannot be attained through the Old Testament law. So he tells us that the intention that he perfects, that he intends, though it is not possible through the Levitic and the Aaronic priesthood. And that's why that parenthesis basically puts it all under for under it. There in verse 11, the parenthesis for under it, the people received the law. So you got the law, the temple, the priesthood. It's not possible to accomplish God's ultimate purposes, perfecting a people, a global people, through the old covenant, through Israel and its law and Aaron's priesthood, it's not possible. So why is this true? And that's going to be continued. This is what he's doing through the entire book of Hebrews. Why that priesthood, that law, why the life of Israel and the religion of Israel and the sacrifices and the temple and the priesthood of Israel were inadequate, ineffective. They have their place. We're about to talk about that. They have their place. But their place isn't to accomplish God's ultimate purpose, which is the perfecting of a people through grace and faith. The law was given to Israel after the promise. And so the law that he's talking about here is a placeholder. He gives the promise. That promise is fulfilled and his purposes for the globe and the world is accomplished in Jesus. And, and the law and the life of Israel in the middle is a placeholder until Jesus should come. Until the promise is fulfilled. It does not take its place. The law given to Israel, that priesthood and all that he does in that whole period, does not take the place of the promise. It never supersedes it. It never replaces it or is a sidetrack. It actually serves the promise. God made the promise, and until the one to whom the promise was made should come and fulfill it all, he gives the law, he gives this, this Israelite priesthood to hold the place and to serve a purpose until he should come. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, 17 to 19. The law, which came 430 years after, after what? The promise. The covenant with Abraham. The law came 430 years after, and it does not annul the covenant that was already ratified by God. What covenant? The covenant of grace that he made with Abraham. And the promise that he gave him. The law coming did not annul the promise. 
It did not supersede it or take over. No, it did not make the promise void. The promise was still the promise. It was still the purpose of the ultimate purpose of God. But the law is given in between not to take its place or to make it void, but to serve it until the Messiah should come. Which is what he says, for the inheritance, if the inheritance comes by law, if it could have come by all that Old Testament stuff, then it's no longer coming by promise. It was never intended to come through all that Old Testament law. If it did, you didn't need the promise, and you don't need Jesus. And so it serves a place, but its place is not to supersede the point of the promise, which is salvation by grace through faith, ultimately in Christ alone. So God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And then it raises the question that I've been touching all along here, then why then the law? Then why did he give the law if the law doesn't take the place of the promise, doesn't annul the promise, and and the promise is going to be fulfilled? And what's the point of the law? Where is its role in salvation history? And he tells us it was added because of transgression, because of the sin in the world that Jesus would come to deal with. Because there was sin in the world, he gave the law to serve the people of God and to prepare them for the coming of the one who will fulfilled all the promises, right? He says, that why then the law was added? Because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That is the Lord Jesus. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It was a guardian in order that we ultimately could be justified by faith, which my friends is the only way any human being will ever be justified in the sight of God is by faith. And the law was a guardian. Some of you are familiar with some of the other uh, uh, translations of that text where in some places it's translated as a schoolmaster or a tutor. That, that God gave us the law in the context of the promise. Not to take its place, not to annul it, not, but to serve it. To be a guardian, a schoolmaster, a tutor until the one should come to whom the promises were made. It stands in between the promise and its fulfillment, serving God's people as a schoolmaster and a tutor. Romans 3.20 says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Never could, never will. No Old Testament Jew was ever justified in the sight of God by obeying the law. It's not possible. And in fact, it is the opposite purpose for which the law is given. The law was not given to make us righteous and justify us. It was given to show us that we can't obey the law, that we failed to obey the law, that we're sinners. It shows us the righteousness of God and shows us that we need a Savior, right? The law shows us what sin is. Paul said, I wouldn't have known what covetous was if the law didn't tell me don't covet. And when I heard the law don't covet, I saw covetous in my heart all over the place. The law revealed my sin to me. It didn't make them sinful. But the law showed us what sin is. It showed us what God's righteousness and holiness is. And the law reveals to us what sin is. And by doing so, it reveals to us. We're sinners. We can't keep the law. We fail. Which is why in the Old Testament, and we'll get here in future weeks, is why in the Old Testament, even in the law that he gave, when Moses gave the law, when God gave the law, and he said, here are the commandments, here is righteousness, here are, you know, ten 
big words for you to follow. Here they are. And then here is a sacrifice. Here is a way that when you fail, you can sacrifice an animal in your place, a substitute by which your sin might be covered and you might be forgiven. Built into the law is its own failure in a way. A placeholder for Jesus. We'll come back to that. But we need to understand. The passage is telling us the time of the law, the time of the the guardian, the tutor, and the schoolmaster, the time of the law is over. The one we have been waiting for has come. Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there's near necessarily a change in the law as well. Jesus comes not in the order of Aaron. He comes in the order of Melchizedek. And he supersedes Aaron. The Melchizedek priesthood supersedes, precedes, is first and before the Aaronic priesthood that comes after. It is the priesthood of the promise that that is the promise to which we are waiting. And that priesthood of Aaron just held the place until that one should come. And now as he comes, there is a change in the priesthood, which means there's a change in the law. And all of that passes away. The temple, the sacrifice, the priesthood, all of it. In the next few chapters, he's going to unpack that. It's all unnecessary now because the one to whom the promise was made has come. He has fulfilled it. It's no longer necessary. He is the heir of all the promises. He is not of the tribe of Levi. He is not from Aaron's tribe. right? And this is what he goes on to tell us in verses 13 to 14. He said, the one to whom all these things were spoken, the one to whom the promises were made, the one for whom we were waiting, the heir of all things, for this one, these things are spoken. He belongs to a different tribe, another tribe, not the tribe of Aaron, from which no one has ever served at the altar. Right? He's from, verse 14, for it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And in connection to the tribe of Judah, Moses never said anything about priests. We have a change in priesthood and so a change in the law because the law said that no one from the tribe of Judah could serve as a priest. It was against the law. Like literally the Old Testament law, only Levites, only the sons of Aaron could serve as priests. Only by physical descent from his family could you be a priest. But here comes one from the tribe of Judah, appointed by God as a high priest. Until the coming of the one, the Son of God, the heir of all the promises. So Moses' law stood between the promise and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It was never meant to take its place. It was never meant to save us or anyone. Because the law is weak and useless. I'm going to jump to 18 and 19 and we'll come back to the verses we just skipped. For in verse 18 it tells us that on the one hand... A former commandment, the law of Aaron and the priests in the temple, a former commandment is set aside because it's weak and useless. Right? That's the first thing. It's weak and useless. We set it aside because it's ineffective. But secondly, he says, for the law made nothing perfect. That's why. But on the other hand, a better hope which is introduced. So not only is this as weak and effective, but we actually have been given something better. Right? 
something better, a better hope is introduced through which we might draw near to God. Right? The, the law that God gave to Israel is set aside, he says here. These are strong words, but we need to understand them. He says the law of Moses was weak and useless. Now, in the parentheses, he tells us what he means. Right? By weak and useless, he is saying in terms of its effectiveness. I started out saying the law is holy and righteous and good, right? But it was weak and useless. Why? In parentheses, because the law could make nothing perfect. It couldn't actually save anyone. It couldn't actually make anyone righteous. In fact, all it did was show us our unrighteousness, right? It wasn't able to save us. It wasn't able to forgive us, right? The law could show us our sin and show us that we fall short of God's glory and his purposes, but it had in itself no power to save. Even in reading the law, we read it and say, we'll try, but it gives us no power to do the law, right? I need power to do what is right. Isn't that your problem every day? I know what is right. It's the doing of what is right that is the problem. It's a matter of power. Right? I can't do. The law tells me. It shows me righteousness. But at the same time, it shows me my weakness and my inability to do it. The law shows us what righteousness is, but it is weak. It has no power. It is useless to actually make us righteous, to help us obey it perfectly reveals righteousness and justice of God, but it has no power to forgive us for falling short of it. The law stands fully righteous and just, and all it can do then is condemn us. And that's its place in history. The promise was made until the one should come to whom the promise was made and be fulfilled and the law prepares us for him, for our need for a savior. The law itself is perfectly righteous. Romans 7:12 said, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, it is righteous and good. In Psalm 19, it tells us the law of the Lord is perfect. And what we need to hear there, it is perfect for the purpose for which God gave it. Where we go astray with the law is when we make it try to serve some purpose that was not God's purpose. If we try to, to make it serve as a way of salvation, that I could be good enough, that I could do what's right, that I can try hard and fulfill. If we try to make it a way to be right with God and to be justified, we misuse the law and all it does is condemn us. But it is perfect for what God gave it for. Galatians 3, 21 and 24, he says, is the law contrary to the promises of God then? No, they're not at odds. The law, the law serves the promise, certainly not. For if the law could have been given, that could give life, that could make perfect, could give righteousness, then righteousness would have indeed come by the law. But the scripture, it couldn't do that. What did it do? It imprisoned everything under sin. It showed us our sin and our need for a savior. Why? So that the promise would come by faith in Christ. It would drive us to a savior who had the power to forgive us, to save us, and to give us his spirit and the power to live more righteously. The law prepared the way for a better hope 
through which we may draw near to God. And so finally, that is verses 15 to 17. God provided a better way. His name is Jesus. And so we return here where we see the rise of another priest in verse 15. This becomes even more evident as another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. There had been 1,500 years or more of Aaronic priests and only Aaronic priests and only their sacrifices and only their temple, all of it centered there in Israel until one arose in the likeness not of Aaron but of Melchizedek, a priest, a high priest unto God, a priest of the promise, not of the law. Jesus' priesthood is not based on law. This is verse 16, what he's trying to tell us. Right? Who, he has become a, a priest not on the basis of legal requirements, not according to the law of Moses in the Old Testament, concerning bodily descent from Aaron. That's not the basis of his priesthood. He's come to put an end to that, and he takes the priesthood by the power of an indestructible life. Jesus' priesthood. So in Hebrews 5, if you remember in verses 5 and 6, he says, so also Christ didn't exalt himself to be made a priest. No, he was appointed by him who said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. God breaks the chain of the Aaronic priesthood. God intervenes in history and appoints a new priest, his own son, to serve as a priest of the promise and to put an end to the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. And he's not just another mortal man whose priesthood dies with him. Jesus is God with us. He's God incarnate. John 16, 28, he says, I came from the Father and I have come into the world. I came from the Father. The Father appointed me as his son to be high priest And I came from the Father into the world to serve this purpose. I came from heaven with the power of an indestructible life to accomplish, to accomplish God's ultimate purpose, which was to save and perfect a people for himself. And the law couldn't do it. Being sinless, he lives a perfect life a sinless life. He fulfills all of that law that he offers as a high priest of promise. He offers his life, as an indest- his indestructible life on the cross to pay our debt, to be that sacrifice and being sinless. He had no punishment of his own to bear. When he went to bear the wrath of God on the cross, he did it not because he deserved it, but because we deserved it. And so he goes in our places, our sacrifices, our high priest to bear the wrath of God on our behalf. The grave could not hold his indestructible life. And he was raised to power and glory where he stands as our high priest, your high priest in heaven at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Hebrews 5, 9, and 10 says, being made perfect, he became the source of an eternal salvation for all who would obey. My friends, only Jesus is able to provide 
God's ultimate intention and purpose, which is a perfected, a perfected people for himself, made righteous, truly righteous, but he does it through the righteousness of Christ. The law is weak and useless. It doesn't make anybody perfect. There's no way to earn our forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, he the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, though he was sinless. He bore our sin, the punishment for our sin on the cross. He made him who had no sin to be sin, to bear our sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become that which God intends, that we would become. I don't know if you can fully hear that. We are now in Christ the righteousness of God. That we might be as righteous before him as Jesus is righteous before him. He who had no sin took our sin and removed it, that which separates us from God. He he took our sin away, forgiving it, and he imputes to us his own righteousness. So that we might become the righteousness. So we go from being sinners where our sin is paid for and forgiven and to become righteous. And we stand righteous in the sight of God, not on the basis of anything we have done, but only on the basis of what Christ has done, that he is our righteousness. If you have Christ as the heir and the son of God, you have all that is his becomes ours. And to stand on anything else is foolishness. We have a perfect righteousness. It's given to us by faith alone. It's a gift that is given to faith. The high priest of promise gives it to us. And so we have not only perfect acceptance uh, to the Father, this acceptance in the righteousness of God, where we're justified and we stand before the Lord justified and we have access and we're accepted we have a perfect a perfection. When he says perfection here, I just want to now just blow that out as we, as we, as we end and to see that this perfection, it, is a per, it includes this perfect righteousness by which we stand perfect in the presence of God. We need a perfect righteousness or we can't be saved. And, it, and his is the only perfect one. So we forsake our own. We repudiate our own. I have no righteousness to offer. I have nothing to give. Bankrupt, empty-handed I come to receive the righteousness of Christ. And so that is part of the perfection. But the perfection that he's talking about here is much bigger than that. It's actually the consummation of all of God's saving purposes. The perfection that he is aiming at is is to remake all that was broken and fell. So in the fall, everything that was broken, and God is planning a perfection, a renewal of all things, a time when he will make all things new. And the perfection that he's talking about here that that we would participate in is this ultimate full consummation. We're perfectly saved, not just right now to be righteous and accepted, but we're saved for all eternity. There's so much included in that promise and that gift. It includes a new body. I'm looking forward to that one. It includes a new body and a new heavens and a new earth. Right? A new existence where all things is renewed and all that is broken in the world is done away. We're in a time when we will be like Jesus, not just righteous with his righteousness, even while we are simultaneously a sinner and yet righteous in Christ, which is a marvelous thing. But what about the day when you are actually sinless? 
your righteousness with his right, but you'll be like him because you'll see him as he is and, and, we, and there will be no more sin and no more death and no more tears and no more crying. And the perfection is that we will actually be like him, glorified, as he is glorified in the presence of God for an eternity. Psalm 16 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That is a perfection he's aiming at. He isn't just making us perfect here to stumble through this life. He is aiming as an eternity where he's adopted us as his children. He intends to perfect you. I mean completely perfect you. Sinless in his presence forever. In your presence there's fullness of joy. His purpose is that you and I, at the end of verse 19, where he's going, what is God's ultimate purpose? He's given us a better hope. It's introduced through which we might draw near to God. My friend, you know that that is God. His ultimate purpose for you is to be near him. His ultimate purpose for you is to be his perfected child, known and loved forever, an eternity. Do you know the presence of God where there is fullness of joy? Have you pressed past and into his presence in your worship and in your prayer and in your, that there is an access? He says we, we can come now, that he welcomes us into his presence, that we may draw near, we may draw near in worship, we may draw near in prayer, we may draw near just to be with him and to know his love and his care for us, to bask in his presence and to experience the goodness that he intends. You have access to your Father in prayer, in full and free worship of your souls, the love, the joy, the peace. It's part of the perfection that he intends for us, the taste of which we may have now. Do you know and experience the freedom of the children of God? That you have been made perfect by the power of an indestructible and eternal life. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sin, that you didn't just give us a law and tell us, try harder, but you made us a promise. And you cut us a covenant. It is a new covenant in the blood of Jesus. And that you have given us one whose priesthood is not weak and useless, but who is mighty to save. Father, would you help us to put our faith and our trust in Jesus? That we may enter into that perfection and into the hope of the, the life that you promise, an eternal life. And that it may change everything, not just then, but now. Every day we stand, we live in the power of an indestructible life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.